And now, Die Hard... No, I'm, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I had to make the reference. I don't think this is like Die Hard. I'm with the writer on that. Oh, it's the same genre. But, I mean, what do you do, right? This is also the same genre as Farscape, for God's sakes. <laughs> you know. Lone person, hostile enemies, outnumbered, has to outthink them. I mean, come on. I can think of a lot of things that do this. It's a different expression entirely. What I'm really impressed by is actually the lighting arrangements. I know that sounds like a strange comment, but because the ship was supposed to be powered down, they had to actually get legitimately creative with how they did the lighting, because all the lights they had for all the sets were all set up and had been set up for years at this point. They had, like, the, 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 the typical template, basically, physical template, but still. So they're like, okay, all the lights are off. How do we light this corridor? Uh, and they had to actually think about it. I think they did a good job of it. Bold is this one, Cliff Bowl. And he does some good shots. There's a really nice bit at the beginning where Picard walks up to a turbo lift. Right, the turbo lift opens. Riker comes out, turbo lift close. He talks with Riker. He goes to the turbo lift again. Turbo lift opens. Data's inside. One shot. No transition. Now, obviously, it's obvious how they do that. They just kind of slip him in behind the set. But it's still a nice effect, and they pull a lot of neat little things like that. I also like a lot of the intro, where it's just everyday stuff. You know, okay, we need to have this, and we need to deal with this, and blah, blah, blah. It's just maintenance. And I know this. I'm probably one of the only people in the world who thinks this way, but I think there's something weirdly fascinating about watching this kind of maintenance at work, you know? Maybe you don't know. <laughs> That's okay. Like I said, I'm pretty weird here. Uh, there's this whole discussion about small talk and data discussing trying to learn small talk. I myself don't actually do small talk particularly well, but that's because I don't think that way. The whole point of small talk is that there's nothing substantial about it. Now you want to talk? Oh, I'm all over that. But we need to have something to actually talk about first. I do small talk usually as a segue into a real conversation. One of my favorite things is to comment on the temperature, which is a pretty common small talk thing. Then, based on how they react, I can then segue that into something else. Like, ah, oh, it's better than such and such. Oh, man, when I used to live in such a place. Or, oh, dude. And sometimes they use it as a segue to talk about stuff. This is my point. Small talk that just stays small talk. I mean, what's the point of that? Small talk that turns into talk? Eh, okay, I'm with that. I, um, I'll talk, I guess I'll talk about this here. So Hutchinson is in this episode. Uh, Commander Hutchinson, three pips. And apparently everyone hates him. Like, even Worf is like, uh, can I please be excused from the reception hall? Oh, thank God. Sir, can I please be excused? No, you can't be excused, Mr. LaForge. Worf got there first, sorry. And Worf's like, yes. And they're, they all treat him as if he's like the plague and they just can't stand being around him. Why? I have seen so many people who are so much more irritating than this in real life. I know, I know, they're not used to dealing with, you know, normal people, but... He was, frankly, inoffensive. In fact, even though it's supposed to be small talk, and he certainly does engage in small talk, there's also plenty of just talk there, too. Like, something that could approach a conversation if anybody bothered to engage him back, which, of course, no one does. They just smile and nod. Kill me. Oh, God, kill me. <coughs> Is everyone on the Enterprise not antisocial? That would explain a lot, actually, now that I think about it. Hmm. Regardless, what I do know is that it's really bothersome to me how much they ostracize this poor guy. Then, of course, they aim 
Hutchinson at Data, and the two just create a small talk loop. And apparently Hutchinson never notices, which is actually kind of insulting when you think about it. But then again, this then leads to something even more insulting. Now, I'm gonna, this is going to sound weird. Like, this is, this is several scenes spread out. I'm just talking about it all in one bundle, because it's all one event, basically. See, this is the worst part of the episode for me. Oh, not the Hutchinson or the smallpox thing, no. <clears throat> no, what I'm referring to is the fact that the enemy reveals themselves, and they go to shoot Geordi. And Geordi's like, yeah. And then they go to shoot Hutchinson. You ever heard of character shields? It refers to the concept that main character sometimes is plot shield. The main character can't die, even if they're hit by the exact same weapon in the exact same way as a extra who then dies. This actually happened on Voyager more often than I'd like to admit. Geordi is fine. Without a med kit, Crusher stabilizes him. Hutchinson is freaking dead. This is confirmed in the original script as well as in the way they presented That purple rug over him? Yeah, he's dead. They killed him. Now, what's actually interesting is there's a lot of death in this episode, but I'll cover that in a second. Anyways, moving on. So we go through back to the ship, and there's a really nice shot, again, credit to Bull, where Picard's just walking through the bridge as it's powered down. I gotta admit, the Enterprise D, that is to say the Galaxy class, has always been one of my personal favorite bridges across the franchise. There's just something really simple, and yet at the same time, I don't want to use the word elegant. Simple yet reliable? I don't know what, what word to use. I, I love the nice oak awning, I love you know, the, the, the presentation of the chairs and the, the back consoles and the front... It's just an awesome thing, and I've always loved that bridge design. At least once they figured out where the front consoles were supposed to sit. Earlier on, they had them in just this really weird position. Anyways. So I like it. I'm with it. And Picard just walking through admiring it is a nice shot. There's even several things of him reflected in the console. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. Then... I'm sorry, I forgot to mention this earlier. Data... Data is like emulating the expression as he's watching Hutchinson, and then he starts trying to figure out how to do the the body language. Uh, just uh, Beverly, may I call you Beverly? And <laughs> I just what? Anyway, sorry. Moving on, moving on. So he goes back to get the saddle. Okay, I'm with it. And I mentioned the lighting, and then Picard's like, "All right, I'm here. Oh, I'd better get to a transport room before the power runs out." Oh, I was like two seconds too slow. Why didn't he just try to hit any? panel and say, computer, halt, program, authorization, yada yada. Or, as another example, one of the things he could have done is said, computer, communicate with the surface, get me in contact with such and such. I mean, there's options here, you don't have to beam off at the first step. Okay, whatever. I know, the episode wouldn't have happened if he did that. It just kind of struck me as weird. <clears throat> so... This, of course, leads to him interacting with uh, Tuvok, Lieutenant Tuvok. Now, Lieutenant Tuvok is here, obviously, on behalf of Starfleet Intelligence. We know he does intelligence work over on Voyager. So it makes sense that he's in deep cover for these clearly Maquis agents, even though the Maquis doesn't exist yet. At least, uh, don't... I guess the Maquis kind of exists? 
whatever. The point being, the monkeys surely exist by now. I mean, we've already had D Space Nine starting, so logically it makes perfect sense that Tuvok is here as part of his cover, and he's the only one to survive, clearly. That's also why he accepts being neck-pinched. He's like, oh no, he's trying to neck-pinch me. I better pretend to be passed out. Ugh, totally passed out. He's a good operative, is what I'm trying to say. <clears throat> so that's him. Uh, we also see Lita. Uh, oh god, I can't think of the actress's name all of a sudden. Hang on. The woman who plays Lita over on Babylon 5, which I just gave away the joke, but whatever. What is her name? Um, isn't it Patricia Tallman? It is Patricia Tallman. I'm right, I'm right. Who actually does a lot of work in Star Trek in general. Usually as a stunt double, but she nevertheless has a lot of smaller roles like this one. Which is a bit of a shame. She's actually pretty decent, and, you know, they could have done something with her instead of Babylon 5, Season 5. Anyways, so she's there, and it's like, okay, so that's that's two agents. I wonder if the, the, the telepaths are trying to meet up with the Maquis, and that's why Tuvok was here. Hmm. Actually, all this joking aside, I do have a headcanon theory I'll get to in a minute. What I want to talk about right now is, uh, how do none of these people recognize Picard? They recognize his name the moment he says it, but none of them have ever seen him or anything about him. These people have been planning this heist for how long? There's a lot of flaws in the script. And you know why? This is a good time to talk about this. So the initial script was written by... Bob. And Bob uh, felt... Basically, they felt the script wasn't working. So they brought in Ronald D. Moore to do a page one rewrite. Now, here's the problem. Um, they were doing this rewrite so late into production, they were actually still rewriting the episode while shooting it. Now, I like this episode, but if you sit back and think about it for a few seconds, the logical flaws are glaring in this one. Uh, Morgan Gendel. Morgan Gendel, he's the one who wrote the original. <clears throat> yeah. Anyways, moving along. So... Picard outmaneuvers them. <laughs> you could tell... I'm trying to think how to phrase this. Basically, you can always t tell how professional someone is in this kind of situation by how easy they are to take advantage of. What I mean by that is, if that was a, you know, the guy who was aiming his gun at him was actually good at his job, he would recognize that what Picard is doing is trying to get him to lower his guard by presenting someone who is non-threatening. Because if you are non-threatening, people will pay less attention to you or think they don't have to you know, watch you as carefully, right? Conversely, if you act like you're always going to be a problem, they will watch you more, meaning your attention is on them, not someone else. This guy falls for it completely, so Picard manages to do something that's never explained, that somehow causes the entire warp engine to freak out even though the main power is off. Again, logical holes. So he runs over, disables the, the defense shield, and is like, well, peace. This basically ensures they have to run to 10 forward. Okay, logical. He is, nav he is ensuring that, tactically speaking, they have only one place to go. Next thing he does is he goes and hits Worf's place and gets some frickin' weapons. Yeah, that makes sense, too. He needs weapons that are actually going to be operative since phasers aren't going to be working because, you know, the energy field of quantum quantum. Okay, I'm with that. Then he goes and, and makes sure they can't take the normal route to 10 forward. 
I like that move best because it's the one that makes the most sense. It means that they are delayed, which by nat natural consequence means he has more time, including setting up traps and 10 forward, which he does in fact do. So all of this makes perfect sense. <clears throat> what I like best is when he's listening in on the conversation, he gives away his advantage to warn them. You're moving Trilithium, that's incredibly stupid. Now, I don't think he did it for their sake, to be completely blunt, because he kills every single one of them with only one exception. No, seriously. They don't spend a lot of time and attention on it, and this is how you can feel Moore's influence here, but he kills all of them. Uh, Tuvok guy, he's left behind in sickbay, so... There's the guy who was chasing him, who we actually hear scream... There's uh, not Lita, who's hit by the traps, and then... The only guy he doesn't kill is the nervous one, who was in fact killed by the evil one. I can't remember her name. The actual merchant mercenary lady herself, who of course naturally is so stupid, she decides to kill her fellow partners to get a bigger chunk of the, the cut, because I don't know why. I mean, why would you want people you could work with in the future to get even more money when you could get more money right now? That's just so stupid. I can't even keep the, the, the sarcasm up. She's an idiot. So she kills him. But Picard kills all of the others, oh, and then her, by pulling the stabilizer. Fun fact, I was actually paying attention this time around. He does specifically dive for the machine, not her, during one of the edits. Although, if I'm being blunt, most of the edits are actually really inconsistent from each other. Like, you can tell these are things that were shot completely segregate from each other. Yay. <laughs> I do like how he completely outmaneuvers them. See, here's the thing. People have called this Die Hard. Let, let me explain something really quick. All memes, all jokes aside, you know what Die Hard is? One relatively normal guy who barely keeps up with people who are constantly ahead of him and constantly being frustrated by him. Even though Mr. McClane wins Die Hard, look at what he has to go through to do that. Everyone else is just constantly on top of things, sitting there lounging about, enjoying a drink, you know, working on the computer. He's struggling, bleeding, walking over glass. The, the whole point of his connection with the cop, whose name I can't remember, please forgive me, is that it gives him some human connection to enable him to have some of the strength to keep going. In short, he's starting on the back foot, and he stays there the whole movie. It is the fact that he endures despite the fact that he is do suffering horribly the whole time. That's the point. Die hard. You with me? Full rumination analysis on Die Hard. Vote for 2021. <laughs> but the point here is this is the exact opposite of what's happening with Picard. Picard is completely on top of these people at every junction. The moment he notices anything is wrong and encounters Tuvok, I know that's not his name, Tim Russ, from that moment onwards, he is completely on top of things. And at every step of the way, he is multiple steps ahead of his captors and enemies. The one and only time he has any kind of hardship is when he is, you know, oh god, turn off the sweep, turn off the sweep, turn off the sweep, and that's it. Now, don't mistake me. There's nothing wrong with that. You don't need to have your, your protagonists constantly struggling to win in order for it to be interesting. It can be interesting to watch how they have outmaneuvered their enemy, to, to be sitting here thinking, okay, what's next? What other brilliant plan does he have in mind? There's something enjoyable about watching someone succeed because they are ahead of their opponent, right? It's easy to overdo that, 
but it's still an enjoyable thing in its own right. So that's what this episode is. Picard completely dancing circles around these people right up until the bitter end. By the way, as a quick aside, when he's there on 10 Forward, just speaking personally, I would strongly consider grabbing a weapon and trying to break through the window while constantly calling for help. Because space is pretty bad, but there's at least a chance you'll survive that, especially if someone notices and beams you aboard. Whereas that field, yeah, that's just going to freaking kill you. Just thinking out loud here. <clears throat> I know, that would be really expensive to do. <sighs> I wrote his name down, Neil. The, not, not Tuvok's character, the guy who she kills. The one only person he doesn't kill. That is actually amusing to me. He really does kill a lot of people in this episode. They just kind of brush right over that. It's just weird. I mean, I'm fine with it. Oh, yeah. I mentioned the headcanon thing. So she's stealing Trilithium. She is a mercenary. She's going to go sell it. I think she's working for Soren. She may not even know she's working for Soren, or it may be an intermediary, but I think this is a... Obviously, none of this was planned. Let's just make that clear. Although work was already being done on Generations at this point. That is a true fact. So, make of that what you will. But personally, given the, the way that this... I know the script of Generations was made, like, immediately around the script of All Good Things, which is a ways in the future, I don't think this was an intentional connection. It is interesting to think about, though, because remember... Ronald D. Moore was the one who gave this the script pass, and he's the one who, along with Braga, worked on Generations. So I'm sure the whole Trilithium super dangerous weapon thing, it's stuck in his mind, and he's really big on continuity like that. Food for thought. <clears throat> I think that's actually it. I do have one last question. What do they do with Trilithium normally to dispose of this? Do they just deatomize it? It seems really unstable, and they can't just you know, reduce anything to composite particles. So, so what do they do with it, I wonder? Maybe it's like in Mass Effect where you have to discharge into an atmosphere or something. I don't know. Either way, I hope you've enjoyed this look at what I consider to be a rather enjoyable episode. And I'll see you next time. <laughs>